Morning, Redemption Arcadia. My name is Josh Prather. I'm uh, one of the elders here, and I oversee our community and global initiatives for Redemption Church, which means I try to shape the values and philosophy for how we love the neighbors outside of our communities. So if you're thinking about homeless communities, refugee communities here, it'd be refugees, it'd be working with alongside prison fellowship, um, it'd be Ethiopia, things like that. It's a privilege to be able to speak with you today before I get rolling into the text. Let me just take a moment, pray once again, and ask God to be in this, okay? Father, we humble ourselves before your word, God, and I just repent. There's so much in me, God, that is not of you. There's so much in me that wants to be known, that wants to be seen, that wants to be worshipped, God, and we come before your word and recognize that you're the one that's supposed to be worshipped. You're the one that's supposed to be praised, God, so I just submit myself before you. May my words be pleasing to you, God, and ultimately all that we're doing is to bring glory to Jesus and to follow. We want to be a people that follow you and love our neighbor. So stir our hearts for Jesus. May we fall in love with him. In the name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> so <clears throat> that's a pretty exciting text, right? <laughs> yeah. So when you first read that, it's not very exciting, and we'll get to it in just a second. Before we do, I want to go back and I want to talk about Cody's message. Cody did a great job last week, if anyone was here. Um, he did a great job talking about the transfiguration. In this moment where Jesus is having this really powerful encounter with Moses, and Cody was saying what it's supposed to say in this moment is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses, up until this time, has been kind of like the central figure for God's people. So God's people have looked to Moses, they've rested in Moses, and Cody is saying, no, no, no. It's Jesus. We're looking to Jesus in this moment. And Cody also mentioned that Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy, someone's going to come. Someone's going to come, and he's going to be greater than Moses. And I think Mark, throughout his gospel, is tracing what I say is a new exodus. He's, he says, okay, there is this exodus that was so powerful in the book of Exodus, but then something new is happening. Something's happening. When Jesus shows up on the scene, something new and powerful is taking place. But to get there, I want to go back to the book of Exodus and talk just for a second. God's people are in Egypt, and it's on the tail end of Joseph, <clears throat> and Joseph was faithful. Joseph was faithful. So God's people are in Egypt, and everything is okay with God's people. They're in the land. Everything's fine, but there arises a Pharaoh who forgets God's people, and he forgets Joseph. So what does he do? He looks, he sees the Hebrews, and he sees the Hebrews growing in number, huge numbers, and he gets insecure and says, we need to do something about these Hebrews. If we don't do something, they could, over, they could overpower us, they could overtake us. So he puts them into slavery, and he even goes as far as to systematically kill God's people. So you come to the point in the story where Moses is spared. A lot of you know this story. He's put in the basket. He's sent down the river. God saves him. A lot takes place that I'm not going to hit on just for the sake of what I'm trying to talk about in this story. But Moses ends up outside of Egypt. He's outside of Egypt. And God comes to him and says, I want you to go to Pharaoh because I've heard the cries of my people. The cries of my people have come up to me, God says. And I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, no, thank you. <laughs> God says, well, you're going to do it. So he's like, okay, I'll do this. So he goes before Pharaoh, and time and time again, he's saying, Pharaoh, I've talked to God. And he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, time and time again, says no. He says no. He says no. 
until finally, you can imagine Moses bringing this to Pharaoh. He comes into Pharaoh and he says, if you don't let God's people go, the firstborn son of every family is going to die and there will be a cry in Egypt like you've never heard if you do not let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And Moses says, okay. He goes away and he comes to God's people and he says, sacrifice and put the blood of that sacrifice over the door. Put it on the doorpost, put it above the door so that when the destroyer, and that's the what the, the word the Bible uses, when the destroyer comes through, they're going to pass by these doors because the blood of the sacrifice is over the door. So the destroyer comes through and there is a cry in Egypt like no one had ever heard because the firstborn son of every household is taken. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let your people go. So once again, a lot takes place in this story. I'm not going to mention, but you find God's people, these ragtag slaves at the base of Mount Sinai, and God says, you yourself saw what I did to Pharaoh, what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself, but for the purpose of being a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Or for the sake of our text, let me say this. I brought you out of Egypt as my people to have clean hands. I brought you out of Egypt to have clean feet. I brought you out of Egypt to have clean eyes so that the nations would know me, <laughs> so that the nations would see my people and they would know me. But if you know the story, this is just the story of the Old Testament carrying forward, God's people failed dismally. Time and time again, they're failing, they're failing, they're failing, but God is faithful. He's made a covenant with his people and said, I'm going to be faithful. If you're not faithful, I'm going to be faithful. But they fail, they fail, they fail, and you come to the intertestamental period, it's called, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there's this stirring, there's this longing for God to come again and save. There's this longing for a perfect sacrifice. There's this longing for someone to be faithful. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and says, the kingdom has come in me. And people are like, the carpenter's son? The, kingdom, the kingdom's come through the carpenter's son? I don't know. And that's what leads us to our text. This is the backdrop of the Exodus and who Jesus is claiming to be when we come to our text. So, Follow along with me, if you would. Once again, Mark 9, starting in verse 42. This is Jesus, and he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Immediately, there is a horrific image, the severity of sin could never be overstated in this passage. I can't even draw illustrations that could try to point you to the severity of sin that Jesus is trying to talk about. But let me just go to what he actually does say and tell you what, event, what came to my mind as I studied it. My wife and I love to climb. Rock climbers, I actually got to get out this weekend with a, with a friend of mine. It was great, you know, but if you've ever seen a climbing film in Britain, there's these incredible cliffs. So there's these sea cliffs, you know, that span four or 500 feet high. And these incredible waves are crashing against the bottom of the sea cliff. And you see these climbers 300 feet in the air suspended, trying to get up to the top of this face. And on the top of this face, there's these rolling, lush green hills. It's beautiful. It's this beautiful image. 
And here's the image that comes to mind to me. Because a brother or sister has caused one of these little ones, which isn't just referring to children, which is referring to God's children, all of us, because someone has caused one of these little ones to walk away, here's the image, you have that cliff. It's beautiful lush green grass. Someone standing on the edge. They put a noose around his, her neck, and then they tie the other end to this massive millstone. They wrap it around the other end of this millstone. And the person standing there, because they cause one of God's little ones to sin, the stone is rolled off until it catches, breaks the person's neck, and if it doesn't, rips them down into the ocean. Is sin serious? Sin serious? I think Jesus is trying to say sin is more serious, especially when it comes to brothers and sisters, than you could ever possibly imagine. It's a horrific scene that he's trying to paint. Verse 43, pick up with me. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is a violence that Jesus is trying to give us an image of. Just think for a second. I hate to do this to you, but a hand, you have this in your head? Chopped off. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. And is he literally saying, if you're in sin, you do this? No, no. He's speaking in hyperbole, okay? So he's trying to just draw the severity out, and he's giving us illustrations to say, this isn't what I'm calling you to. You're not supposed to chop it off, but it's that severe, and why? Why would it not do any good if we chopped off every member, if we chopped off hands and feet, if we ripped out our eyes? Why wouldn't it do us any good? Because it doesn't get to right? It doesn't get to the root. I remember when I landscaped <clears throat> for a summer, I was terrible. I was a really terrible employee <laughs> in general before I came to know Jesus. Uh, longer story another time. But I remember my boss always coming up to me and saying two things. One, start working. And then number two, Josh, when you're, when you're pulling out the weeds, you have to get the root. When you're pulling out the weeds, you have to get the root. You can't just cut off the top of the weed. You have to actually go down, and you've got to tear the whole thing out. Why? Because if you just get the arm, if you just get the foot, it doesn't get to the heart. Mark 7, 18 through 23 says this. <clears throat> and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? This is Jesus. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. <clears throat> From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Listen to this list. Listen to this list. Comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slinger, pride, foolishness, all of these things come from within, and they, 
are what defile a person. So Jesus is saying that you could chop everything off. Sin is so severe, I'm giving you an image of how much I hate it. But at the same time, you have to go to the root. If you can't go to the root, then it's just going to come back. It's not going to solve the issue. So he's not speaking of the sinfulness of each body part, saying that your hands are so sinful, you've got to cut them, out, cut them off. He's saying, no, no, no. What you're doing is you're allowing your heart to be infiltrated with sin. And with your members, your eyes are set on wickedness. Your hands, you have to picture your arms out corralling people towards sin, and you're walking people towards it. You're a literal guide. You say, okay, here's, here's the path. Hey, come with me. And you're walking with people towards sin and you're guiding them towards it. And because of that, you're worthy to have a millstone hung around your neck and be tossed into the sea. And if you are saying, Josh, this isn't me, I want you to take a moment. You take a moment, look at your hands. I'm serious, look at your hands. <laughs> look at your feet. You think about your eyes, and you think, how have these led God's people astray? And for me, it's sad. Thoughts come to mind. How many thoughts come to mind for each one of us of how our members have led God's people astray, right? You think about your spouse sitting next to you right now. How have your hands and your feet and your eyes led them astray? You think about your close friends, you think about your family, and you think of so many ways that your members <laughs> have led them astray. And there is a severe punishment he talks about for this, and it's hell. And hell, <laughs> from what the text is saying, is an awful place. It is a, it's a horrendous place that Jesus is trying to describe, and I don't think it's literal here, you know? So we don't, I don't want to get into the literal nature of it, of to say, okay, are there really worms in hell? You know, is it really an unquenchable fire? What he's trying to say is it's horrific, it is the worst place you could possibly imagine because it's contrasted with the kingdom. Because the kingdom is the fullness of God's presence. When we enter into the kingdom, we're in God's presence. We see him face to face. But when you're in hell, it's the absence of God and it is the worst place you could ever imagine. And what I want us to hear is we experience this today and we experience it for all eternity. When you are causing God's children to walk away from him, you are walking in the way of hell and the way of death. Contrary to that, when you are walking with God's children towards life, you are experiencing God's presence and you're experiencing the kingdom. And hell is a horrific place. Jesus says it's better to have an eye ripped out I mean, I, I hate to keep giving you these image, images, but they're just, that's what the text says. Think about an eye being ripped out. It's better to have an eye ripped out than to go to this place, than to go to hell. It is that awful. That's the picture Jesus is trying to paint. But the kingdom is this beautiful place in God's presence. And what Jesus calls for is obedience. And this is where we come to is Jesus says, okay, if you want to enter into the kingdom, here's what I'm saying. You have to be obedient, holy and fully. You look at your eyes. Think about your eyes. You think about your eyes. You look at your hands. You look at your feet. And you look at all your members and say, okay, every single one of these has to be in obedience to the Lord for me to enter the kingdom. For me to have life, the whole of who I am must be obedient. And if it's not, if I've ever one time 
Let a brother or sister, anyone to walk away from the Lord, I am worthy of death and I'm worthy of hell. So we read this passage and we come to it and we say, we can never do it. This passage backs us into a corner, does it not? To say, God, I, I want to go towards the kingdom, but, but my heart, it, it needs to be changed. The motivational structure of my heart has to be changed to where I actually long for the kingdom. But thus far, all I've done in life is think about myself and how I can lead others towards sin and wickedness and not towards the kingdom. And each one of us, <laughs> if we've done it, is bound for hell. So what's the solution? And it's the gospel. As Jesus does every time, he backs you into a corner that says there's one way out of this. There's only one way out of this dilemma that I put you in, and it's me. And it's the gospel. If you go back to the Exodus, I want to draw these threads, and I think Mark is trying to draw them as well. You go back in the story of the Exodus, and I think there's three things that you see that Jesus becomes. He becomes the saving God, he becomes the sacrifice, and he becomes the faithful people. The sacrifice, the faithful people, and the saving God of the Exodus. Go back in the story with me. <clears throat> Walk back to the story, we see the firstborn son is going to have to die. So God says to his people, put the blood over the doorpost. Go ahead, put the blood over the doorpost so that the destroyer is going to pass you by. And then we come to the New Testament and we see in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus is now the blood that we put over the doorpost that we wrap around ourselves so that the, the destroyer will pass us by because we're all bound for hell because of what we've done to brothers or sisters in Christ. So Jesus covers us in his blood. And as the firstborn son had to die, so God's only son had to die. He is the perfect sacrifice. There was a cry in Jerusalem like no one had heard, a cry like no one had heard, I think, until the cry of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry that no one had heard until that time, bearing the penalty, the sacrifice that people have longed for, that God's people had longed for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, he that knew no sin became sin. Can you imagine the God of the universe who was perfect? He became sin. He wrapped our sin around him so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. He that knew no sin became sin. That's point number one, is that Jesus was the sacrifice. Number two is Jesus was the faithful people. Come back with me to the story. God draws his people out of Egypt. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. And God says, you yourself saw what I did. I bore you to myself on eagle's wings. But for the sake of being a holy nation and a royal priesthood, I want you to have clean hands. I want you to have clean feet. I want you to have clean eyes. And it's not just for you. It's for the nations. I need every single person, every single person to look in to Israel, to look into my people and see the way things are supposed to be. But it doesn't happen. But it happens with Jesus. Jesus' hands were clean. His feet were 
clean. His eyes were clean, but he bore the sin of many. Instead of a noose around his neck and a millstone being tossed into the sea, it was a cross on his back. Instead of a hand being cut off, it was a nail through the hand. And instead of feet being cut off, it was flesh ripped off of his back. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and he was the perfect people. Isaiah 53.8 says this, that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Do you understand that Jesus was cut off like a hand and disregarded from God's people for the sake of God's people? Like a hand that's cut off. Jesus was. And the last one is that Jesus is the saving God of the Exodus. God brought his people out of full bondage. And here's something I really want us to see. I think this is important for 21st century church that we miss so often. And we spiritualize what God did and what he does now. Is God brings his people out of whole bondage to sin in the Exodus. You think about everything he did. Spiritually, he saves people. Physically, he saves people. Relationally, he saves people. Economically, he saves people. Politically, he saved people. God rips people out of bondage to sin as he did in Exodus, and he does it now through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As he ripped his people out of Egypt and said, I heard your cries, so Jesus comes and says, I hear your cries. I'm coming for you, and I'm not just taking your soul out. I'm taking the whole of who you are, and I'm bringing it to myself. Jesus is the saving God of the Exodus. God comes back and he keeps his promises to his people. God is faithful. He promised, as Cody said last week, he said, God is going to send somebody and he's going to be faithful. Moses said it in the book of Deuteronomy and Jesus was it. Except this time, what's so miraculous is that it's not through signs and wonders. It is through the cross The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God revealed. God becoming king, God saving a people, God being faithful and obedient in this one moment on the cross, God reveals his power and his authority. It's this incredible moment. But in light of that, there's a call. So we understand there's a standard in this text we could never live up to. There's a call in this text, and we're gonna get to us actually being faithful and obedient. But first, we have to read the text and say, well, we'll never do that. And then we have to say, man, Jesus did it. He was the sacrifice. He was the faithful people. He was the faithful God. He did it. But you come back to heaven and hell, and you see, okay, so now I I don't want to be in hell. I don't want to lead towards death. I don't want to walk with people towards that. I want to walk with people towards the kingdom. But there, there's a call, and that call is faith and repentance. The call is actually giving the whole of who you are to Jesus and his kingdom and resting in his finished work. This text is very clear. I just want to say this is not something I look forward to speaking to. No, no pastor wants to come to this text and teach on this. But if you do not know Jesus, if what I've just said about the gospel, about Jesus being the saving God, Jesus being the faithful people. Jesus being the perfect sacrifice. If you say, I don't believe it, you're going to hell. Read the text. 
You're going to hell, and it's going to be the worst place you could possibly imagine. And something tells me you've experienced it, and you're experiencing it today, because if you're not walking with Jesus, you're walking in the way of death, and you've already started to experience hell, and it's leading towards something that you could never possibly fathom, but there's (laughs) there's good news. There's good news that by faith in what Jesus has done, and what he's accomplished. You can walk in the way of life, and you can walk towards the kingdom of God. And this isn't just a call for the first time, for those that have never heard it, because some of you are saying, Josh, I've never heard this before, and I ask you to repent and believe in Jesus, but I ask the whole church, I ask every single one of us. Martin Luther says that a believer's life is a life of repentance. Each one of us comes to the text, and we say, man, we need to be faithful. Jesus was faithful, and we're so grateful for the faithfulness of Jesus, for the grace that God has given us, that we want to walk in gratitude and in faithfulness. That's the call of a believer. So what does that actually look like? Let's come back to the text. Verse 49, if you want to follow along with me. For everyone will be salted with fire, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will its saltiness, how will it be, how will you make it salty again? Excuse me, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There's a lot of interpretations in regard to this text. So when you say, okay, everyone's salted with fire, what does that mean? Which I think, just let me go down this rabbit trail for a second. See, it's the importance of having so many different people that we sit around the table with and we have these discussions about the Bible and we actually say, okay, how do we as a whole people, you know, different cultures, different backgrounds actually strive together to understand the Bible and what God is trying to say to us. But with my studies, this is what I think God is saying is that every single person will experience fire, the salting with fire. However, and this is a big, <laughs> it's a big however, so don't miss this. It's a big however. However, some of us will experience this with purification, and that's God's people ripping away the impurities from your life, and some of us will experience this in eternal torment and separation from Jesus. One is a good purification. One melts away everything that stands in the way of us seeing God face to face and leads us towards Jesus, and one is more horrific than you could ever possibly imagine but everybody will be salted with fire. That's what I think he's trying to say. And this isn't just a light fire. I wish it was. This isn't just like a light fire. I was making popcorn with my wife uh, a few days ago, and we have this like really terrible pot. So I'm trying to like shake it up, you know, the lid's on there, and I'm trying to press down the lid, trying to shake it up and get like the all the butter and everything mixed around there, you know, and it's not working until finally the lid slips off and I burn my thumb, you know, and I start to cry and my wife says, you're a baby, suck it up, you know. So I go through that whole thing, but I recognize, I thought about this as I'm studying this passage, I'm thinking, this is not the kind of fire and burning that God is talking about, even with his people, even with his people. He's talking about something where he's stripping away the impurities from our lives as God's people so we can actually live as God's people. We can be faithful. Cody said something last week, which was great, that I want to mention again. He said, grace is free, but not cheap. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs us everything. So 
we see the grace of Jesus. Man, he was faithful. That's great. We see that he is the saving God that's come for his people. Man, that's great. He's the sacrifice we could never be. Man, that's great. Amen. We rest in that. We relish in his grace. But then he says, follow me. (laughs) Follow me. And the way of following Jesus is the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering. It's the way of purification. It's the way of stepping into fire. But it's good. I promise you, as the as you're purified and the impurities are stripped away, you come to recognize, oh, it's better to be with Jesus. It's better to have all of it stripped away in light of his grace than to be walking brothers and sisters towards hell and towards death. So here's the first call. Here's the first call with this. We're we're purified so that we can be salt. He says, have salt in yourselves. So I think believers, and this is where he's getting it from, he's getting it from Matthew 5.13, He calls the disciples the salt of the earth. Believers are called to be a preservative. They're called to be a preservative, and here's what I mean by that. I mean that we are supposed to preserve the way things are supposed to be. People, as I said before, should peer into here. They should want to look in to get a glimpse of the way things are supposed to be in the world. We are supposed to be a light and a witness, a preservative, holding things together, when everything else is divided, when everything else is falling apart, people look in here and they say, wow, there's a glimpse, a glimpse of the way things should be. It's a preservative. God's people are called to be salt in light of the gospel. And then number two, God's people are called to be at peace with one another. And that to me is part of the preservation. Phoenix, if you didn't know this, in 2010 was voted the most religiously diverse city in the country, I think that's pretty incredible, right? So really, really diverse. I mean, we live in such a diversity, different ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds, but are we divided? Yeah, there's division in our community, right? And it's not what God intends. So God says here, I want you to rest in the gospel, rest in the finished work of Jesus, but in light of that, I want to move you as a people to actually be a community that's a preservative of unity and harmony and oneness in the midst of extreme division and separation. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Earlier in chapter 9, Jesus sees the disciples already bickering with one another. They're already bickering with one another. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be a community that preserves unity and harmony a community of oneness. The church is to be a contrast community that displays a life free from sin. However, this is not about our individual sin, but about the sin of our brother or sister. We cannot separate ourselves from one another. We protect one another from sin. We challenge one another to walk away from sin and are seen as a community freed from sin. We are either guiding one another. Here's what I want you to hear, so please hear this. We are either, as a community, guiding brothers and sisters towards sin and hell, or together, you're guiding your family, you're guiding your friends, you're guiding your community towards Christ, life, and the kingdom. Jesus has this incredible encounter with this woman in John 8, and he's teaching 
and the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they throw this woman in front of him who's been caught in adultery. And they say, teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery and the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And Jesus knew that they were doing it just to test him and it wasn't because they really cared about the law. It wasn't because they really cared about this woman. So what does Jesus do? This woman, you can imagine this woman's condition. Be with me here with this woman. You can imagine her condition surrounded by men that are accusing her holding stones. Holding stones. Jesus kneels down. He writes in the ground. And he looks up at the men and says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one they walked away, right? because their sins were great, and they dropped their stones, and then Jesus is left. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Jesus is left with this woman on the ground, and he says, woman, who's left to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, likewise, do I not condemn you? Go and sin no more. Your life, what Jesus is saying is your life thus far, you've been using every member. You've been walking with men into dark places where you shouldn't have gone your hands and your eyes have walked with people towards sin and evil. And I'm not calling you now in this moment to chop them off. I'm saying you're forgiven, but go and sin no more. Use your members, use your eyes, use your hands, use your feet to walk in the way of righteousness. Walking with people towards me and towards the kingdom because you're forgiven. You can live free. You can live free and walk with people towards the kingdom. There was a woman up here a few weeks ago who gave an incredible testimony. <clears throat> Her name's Nicole, and she's a part of a ministry called Alongside. It's this transitional prison ministry. It's, it's incredible. And Nicole's story was she was born and raised in a home where her mom was a meth addict, um, and she's been in and out of jail five times. And her dad um, is an alcoholic, and he's been in and out of jail as well. And she was raped, she was molested, she was assaulted, she was neglected. There's trauma beyond belief in this woman's life. This is what she's experienced. So for, for the whole of her life, she's had people guiding her towards sin and hell. People have wrapped their arms around her, and they've had their eyes set towards hell, and they've walked with her towards it. So when she becomes a woman, what does she do? She keeps walking in that direction, and she ends up in jail as well. So she's in jail, and she encounters Jesus. And Jesus kneels down. <laughs> Jesus kneels down and says, hey, I see you. I see you. And you're forgiven. But go and sin no more. So now what is Nicole doing? She had ladies that walked alongside of her. And then now she's actually a mentor. And as ladies are coming out of this, our ladies, as ladies are transitioning out of prison, Nicole is walking alongside of them and said, hey, for the longest time I was walking towards hell. For the longest time I was being guided towards sin and evil, but come with me. Let's walk towards the kingdom together. And she's wrapping her arms around these ladies with her vision because she's free in Jesus, set towards the kingdom, walking with these ladies towards it. Let me close with this. Jesus gave his hands so that we could walk with our neighbors towards the kingdom. Jesus gave his eyes so that we could show our neighbors freedom from sin. And Jesus obeyed with his feet so that we could guide our neighbors towards life abundant.
Let me pray, and David's going to come up and lead us in communion. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for his finished work. God, I thank you that you see us, you forgive us. God, we can find forgiveness in you, but God, you don't leave us there, and you call us, God, to repent and believe. God, you purify us. You rip away all the impurities from our life so that we can be a faithful witness of the way things should be, a preservative of a, co- of a community of harmony and oneness. God, may we walk in the gospel and may we obey because you're worth it. In the name of Jesus, amen.